We have to see them with a different, with a different set of eyes. Or maybe a better way of saying that is we have to see them with a different filter. I have new filters that I get to see things through nowadays. As I get older, filters get, you know, you get more filters, don't you, as you get older. It's the same thing. It's being able to see life from God's point of view and then being able to see others from God's point of view. In these three commands, the Apostle Paul does not walk softly. He tells the people to stop being deceived. He tells them to wake up, and he tells them to stop sinning. And I believe that in the last one, he's talking specifically about all of the selfishness that we see throughout the book of Corinth, the book of Corinthians. He's like, stop. That stuff doesn't matter. In light of eternity, all that stuff doesn't matter. What matters is souls. What matters is people. It's what he's telling them. He tells them to wake up, which is, a, you have, ever, have you ever had somebody, you ever had somebody that was in a, such a sleep that you had to shake them? Or throw water, maybe you didn't have to throw water on, but maybe you did throw water on just for fun, right? That's, th- that's this. This term is, is, is used to, 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 to shake somebody out of a deep sleep. And the sleep that they're in is not a natural sleep, it's a deceptive sleep. They're in a slumber. They're in a, they're, 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 and, I, and, I, and I wouldn't be, I don't think, remiss to say that America is in a slumber in regards to its Christianity today. We've just become kind of lazy. And that's what this restoration of this, of this uh, passion for eternal things should stir us out of that. It should waken us up to eternal things. He closes the previous section, okay, listen to this. He closes the previous section by shaming the church. He shames them. He says, if you believe that the resurrection is true and you do not share the gospel with people, I speak this to your shame. Literally, if you were to say it in modern day terms, you would say shame on you. Shame on you for not warning people. Shame on you for not telling people the gospel. Shame on you. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. You know, shame on the fireman when the house is on fire and he stays outside because there's too much risk involved. Shame on the doctor for not treating the patient because they're too contagious. Shame on the police officer who doesn't rescue the person who's in danger because they don't want to hurt themselves. Shame on those people. But listen, shame on Christians who don't share the gospel with people. When they know that it, there is a forever existence for them. Penn Gillette, you might be familiar with him. He's a very, very notable illusionist in our day. He is most noted for his duo with, which is called Penn and Teller. Teller. Penn and Teller. Penn is the um, taller one, and Teller is the short one that doesn't ever talk. Maybe you have seen their magic shows or whatever. Penn is a very notable atheist, doesn't believe in God at all, but is not afraid to talk about it. One time, Ray Comfort, and some of you are familiar with Ray Comfort, he's a very outspoken evangelist, goes out on the streets and shares the gospel with people. He's in L.A. area, so he came across Penn one time, in a, in a, and he shared the gospel with him. 
and Penn did not receive the gospel. But here's what, here's what Penn Teller told Ray Comfort. He says, and I just want you to think about this with me for a moment. He says this, how much do you have to hate someone to believe in everlasting life and not tell them about it? That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Coming from an atheist who doesn't even believe in God, but his comment is simply this, how can you believe in eternal life and say that you're a loving person and not tell other people about him? That's Paul's challenge. That's what Paul's wrestling with us. He's not just wrestling with Corinth, he's wrestling with Grace Bible Church of Hollister. He's wrestling with John Prettyman. He's wrestling with every one of us today who has fallen into a sleep spiritually, has fallen into a, a focus on self spiritually, and has not lived life for others. So Paul continues his argument. This is where we get to, to verse 35. And in his continuing of his argument, he increases his intensity Matter of fact, the phrase that's used in verse 35, the very first part of it, is an interruptive phrase. It's meant to, it's meant to stop an excuse. In other words, what Paul does is he gives three commands to the people. He shames them, and then he doesn't let them talk because he knows what they're going to do is say what? They're going to say, oh, well, you didn't think about this. We didn't think about that. And Paul is just cutting them off. He's had enough of their argument. He's had enough of their murmuring and their complaining and their excuses for not doing what God has called them to do. And that's, what he, that's the way he starts verse 35. It's a very strong but. It's meant to like, no, you're not talking right now. I'm talking. He's done with the argument. He's done with the excuses. He's saying to them, it's time to step up and do what's right. He interrupts their excuses, but with what with but some will say, and then moves on to the next topic. His use of this strong transition, this interruption in grammar, and his calling them fools reveals to us that he is tiring of their excuses. He's tiring of their arguments. Many scholars believe that the reason why he uses such hard words is that these were mockers. And you go back to the previous text where the Bible says, why are we allowing ourselves to be persecuted every hour? And it's for people like this who just won't stop. It's like they hear the truth, they know the truth, but they just simply have an excuse or reason to not do the truth. Alfred Martin refers to the ones to whom Paul writes as scoffers. He says, these unbelieving scoffers will ask how this body can be reconstituted after it has decayed and dissolved. In other words, they just continue to ask questions. Never coming to a place of conviction, never coming to a place of, of convinced, never coming to a place of any of those things. We're just going to continue to ask questions so we don't have to make a decision. So we don't have to act. And Paul is done with this. 
Paul is likely experiencing what many of us experience when sharing the truth, an unwillingness to accept the obvious truths, followed by a number of questions that disregard the previous answers. With this in mind, Paul is going to continue his argument about the resurrection. He's going to answer for us, or really not answering a question, but presenting a question and then answering that question. He's not going to allow them to present their arguments, their excuses. He's simply going to move on to the next argument for the resurrection. And he's not even going to give them any more reasons for the resurrection at this point. It is absolute. It is true. Now he speaks at it from this point as if true, and here's how it's going to happen. He's come to a place where it's, it's fact, and he's no longer going to argue and debate. Now he's going, to answer, he's going to answer or reveal to them how the resurrection happens. What does it look like? So let's read together. In verse 35, he says this, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised, and with what body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, or another word for that is seed. What you sow is a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body that he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of human's. There's one kind for humans, one for animals, one for birds, and one for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there will also be a, there is also a spiritual body. So let's look at these questions that are asked here in this, in this um, that the Apostle Paul lays out for them in regards to the resurrection from the dead. The question, first of all, is how do the, how do the dead raise? How do the dead rise again? What, what, is, the, what is the means behind it? And the, the issue that the, the Apostle is raising is, is that the, the arguing Corinthians would say that it's impossible to for someone to raise from the dead, right? And we would all say amen to that. It is impossible for someone to raise from the dead, isn't it? There's a lot of things in our life, in our world, that are impossible. They're absolutely 100% impossible to happen. The argument that, that the Apostle Paul is debating here is not something that's not a, 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 what we would call a logical argument. Lots of times we come to places in our lives where we believe that something is not resurrectable, Right? How about in marriages, relationships, finances, those types of things? Those are just simple things, and we get to a place. How many of you have said this or thought this? This is just impossible. It's never going to happen. It's never going to work out. 
Maybe there's an addiction in your life or something that you're being challenged with every day and you just think into the realm of, well, that's just impossible. I'll never be victorious over that. That's a very natural thought. That's a very logical thought in in many situations because things do get pretty bad and they do seem impossible. But it, it is the devil who wants you to think that a situation is impossible. It is the devil that wants you to think that a situation is impossible. And the greatest of the greatest, the, the most amazing of things that, that uh, are the most, um, uh, the most significant of impossible things is that somebody comes up out of the grave, right? You think if you saw somebody raised from the dead, you would think that your marriage could be healed? You guys think that you would? Relationships could be healed? Physical bodies could be healed? Do you think if we were to see that in our church, that we saw a body raised from the dead and the Lord says, hey, look, here's what I can do. Do you think we would believe that there's nothing impossible with God? We would, wouldn't we? And and yet, he's given us that as the very foundation for all of our faith. He's given us the resurrection from the dead. John 11 with Lazarus, he, rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He said, he said that they, he, he hoped, he desired that they would believe. So how do the dead rise? How do the dead raise? That's his, that's his argument here. That's his question. And Paul's response is to call them a what? Paul's response is he calls them a fool. He calls them foolish. And remember, this is the conversation that Paul is literally, literally having with himself. He's, he's, he's making this up as a way to interrupt their arguments. So he's saying anybody who refuses to accept the resurrection from the dead is foolish. Not very kind of Paul, right? Maybe he lacked a little, little uh, kindness, a, a little couth in that situation. But he gives them a strong, he gives them a strong response because they had a lack of discernment in the question. And this was not abnormal to Paul. In Galatians 3, he calls the Galatians foolish. In Acts 23, he calls the high priest a whited wall. And in Titus 1, he calls the Cretans liars, brutes, and gluttons. Okay, so, so it wasn't beyond the apostle Paul to use strong words and calling people names to get his point across. And we're not, you know, thank goodness we don't have any little children in here. We don't want to teach them to call people names. But the Apostle Paul was able to call people names to get the point across. He was getting the point across that this question, this line of thinking that the resurrection is impossible is a foolish line of thinking. It's a, and the word foolish just simply means it's, it's, it's a brainless, it's brainless thinking. It's... it's ignorant thinking. It's stupid thinking. Another word that comes with this I thought was interesting as you think about the type of thinking that the word foolish comes with. It comes with the word egotistical thinking. Prideful thinking. Foolish thinking is prideful thinking. I think we would all agree with that. Luke 12 and verse 20 the rich man is building up his barns. You guys remember the story, right? The rich man has much, and he's building, and he says, he says, my soul has much, and I must have a place to put all of my stuff. And he builds up new barns, right? And he builds up bigger barns and has bigger places for all the stuff that he has. And you know what the Lord calls him? He says, thou fool. 
This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose things will these be that you have stored up? Ephesians 5 and verse 17, they are called fools for not understanding the will of God. 1 Peter 2.15, they are called fools. Or they are, the foolishness of man is put to silence by people doing the will of God. The reason the Apostle Paul calls them fools for not believing in the resurrection is simple. They had stopped considering God in their circumstance. They had stopped considering God's power and God's capability and God's strength in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their doubt. They had stopped considering God. And listen to me, once you move from considering God in your circumstances to everything being based upon natural things, you will often and always fall into despair. He says in Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. It literally means that the fool refuses to acknowledge God in his situation. He refuses to acknowledge God in his circumstances. He refuses to acknowledge God in his problems. He doesn't acknowledge the power of God in his situation, and therefore he's a fool. He closes that verse in Psalms with, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. And it's interesting that he repeats that same exact phrase in Romans 3 and verse 10. He brings it right home to the modern church when he says, there is no one who does good, no one who seeks after God. Why? Because they have replaced God in their thinking. And therefore, everything in life is just simply natural. The fool is one who refuses to acknowledge or consider God in the equation, no matter what the equation. Those struggling with the resurrection had developed a naturalistic view of things and rejected anything that took the supernatural, that leaned on the supernatural, that demanded the supernatural. And this is why Paul calls them fools. The Bible tells us here in our text in verse 38, God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. God is the one who does the resurrecting. It's God's strength and God's power. It's God's might and God's wisdom. He's the one who does these things. And when we have promises in his word, we must consider that those promises are going to be accomplished by his strength and not our own. It is going to be his power that brings these things about and not our own. And this does not just relate to the resurrection of the dead. It relates to all aspects of life. There's nothing beyond our God. There's nothing beyond our God. So how, does the de- how do the dead raise from the dead? How do the dead raise from the grave? Because God raises them. God does it. And when he raises them, he gives them a body as he sees fit. Number two, with what bodies? The second question that he addresses here is, with what bodies do they raise? And he answers this question in a, in a, in a, in a, in a pretty um, 
complete way. He, he, he deals with kind of each and every detail using several different scenarios to describe what, um, how the body raises from the grave. What is the body going to look like after we raise from the dead and the Lord gives us what we know of as our glorified bodies? So there are several things to consider in our text here. The main, ther- uh, the main term that's used throughout our text is used 10 times. It's the Greek word soma, and it just simply refers to the physical. It talks about the body of the stars. Stars have a body. It talks about the body of animals. They have bodies. It talks about the bodies of man. They have bodies. It's like everything that God has created he, uh, uh, in the physical realm, he has given a body. And so he describes even the plants. He says those you sow into the ground is a seed, but what comes forth is a, is a body. Well, we never thought about the plants as, being, as having a body, but that's, what the, that's how the apostle Paul refers to it. That the stars are bodies, that the sun is a body, that the, these are all bodies, they're physical bodies. So when we see the idea of bodies throughout this passage in the, the constant, even the constant connection of the Greek word soma with the idea of sowing and, 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 and having a plant come out, he's drawing us back to the fact that this is the type of body. It's going to be a physical body, a visible body, a body that interacts, a body that eats and drinks, a body that does these types of things. Let's go with, go with me. If you want to turn over to another passage, I think that helps us understand this, it would be in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. The um, Lord is having a conversation with his disciples after, their, uh, after his resurrection. And here's what, here's what it says in verse 36. And they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is Jesus in his glorified body. This is Jesus in his post-resurrection body. See, the, see my hands and see my feet and touch me and know that you can't touch something that is spiritual. It must be physical. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and while they were disbelieving, while they still disbelieved, for joy they were marveling. And he said to them, have any of you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it. And the last few words of that is so important. It says, in their presence. In other words, what he's saying is, is they saw Jesus eat. They watched him put food in his mouth and it digest into his stomach. What is he telling us? He's telling us that the bodies that we will resurrect with will be physical bodies. They will be physical bodies. Just like Jesus' resurrection, we will have physical bodies. But our physical bodies, number two, in regards to how or with what bodies we will raise, our physical bodies will be different bodies. They will not be the same. And he goes on to describe that in several different ways. 
There will be differing bodies, but identifiably connected to who we are. Okay, so you sow a seed into the ground and you get a plant. Is that seed in that plant identifiably together? We put an apple tree, apple seed into the ground, what do we get out of that? We get apple tree, don't we? We put an orange tree into the ground, we get an orange tree. We put something, we put a seed into the ground and we get something out of it that's identifiably connected to it. Now, now get this, it's not a human seed that's put into a ground and then therefore a human body comes out. It is a John Prettyman seed that's put into a ground. God made John Prettyman as an individual person. And John Prettyman, his new body will be identifiable by the seed that's been planted into the ground. We will know each other like we know each other right here. We'll know each other better, we'll know each other clearer, we'll know each other fuller, but we will know each other in the same way because our bodies will be identifiable by the seed that was planted into the ground. That's why he uses the analogy of the, he uses the, analogy of the, um, of the seed in the plant. And he, it's so amazing, too, because he immediately says that, that, the, that, that the resurrection is a supernatural thing, right? You foolish people, why do you not believe in God doing this? And then what's the first thing that he uses to describe the resurrection? Something that is not supernatural in our thinking, right? We look at the plant, we sow the seed, and we watch it come out, and we just think it's all, it's all natural, the reality of it is, if someone tried to explain to you the whole process going on from that seed becoming that plant, we wouldn't be able to do it. You know why? Because it's supernatural. God's the one that's doing it. God's the one that's making that seed grow and giving it life and giving it a new body as he, as he sees fit to do. God is the one who is behind it. Scripture says in, in the Gospels that a farmer will go out and he'll sow seed into the ground and he'll water that seed and he'll nourish that seed and he'll nurture that seed and he goes in his bed at night and you know what he does? He sleeps all night. And it says that he doesn't worry one minute for how that is going to grow. Do you know why? Because he knows it's supernatural. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Paul watered and Apollos, uh, Paul sowed and Apollos watered, but it was God who brought forth the increase. Seed is sown and it grows and it's God who's the one who's doing it. It seems so simple, doesn't it? And that's what he's doing. He's making a simple illustration of an extraordinary event. He's like, it's as simple <laughs> as putting the seed in the ground and watching the plant come out. Right? It's as simple as that. And here's the thing. When you consider God in the scenario, it is as simple as that. But go create your own seed sometime, put it in the ground, and then make a plant come out of it. You'll see how not simple it is. It's supernatural. It's God. The problem with many of us in our, in, our, in, our, in our relationships, in our finances, and these types of things is we've made our own seeds. We've tried to plant them in the ground and try to get fruit to come out of them. We can't lay down in bed at night and sleep 
We can't lay down in bed at night and sleep peaceably because we're trying to figure out how to make that thing grow. Proverbs talks about a man who is wise as a man who has a peaceable sleep. You know why? Because he knows who's in control of it. Your seed ain't going to grow unless the Lord touches it. Water it, plant it, sow it, lay down at bed at night and go to sleep. Wake up the next day, water, wake up, go to bed. Because he's in control of it. We got to get that. That's the resurrection. The resurrection is God's in control. The resurrection is God does it. The seed is sown with one body, but is resurrected with another body. The seed has its own body, but it melds into the plant. When you go and you plant a seed in the ground, you go and you dig that seed up again. That plant has grown. You do not find the seed there any longer. It has become the plant. It has become the plant. It is one. Remember that because we'll get into the application here in a bit. The seed is united with the plant. Differing physically like animals and species, the Lord has the ability to make different animals. It has the ability to make different species. It has the ability to make man. It has the ability to make stars. He has the ability to do all of these different things. Does he not have the ability then also to give you a different body when you raise? That's his argument. He, he, he talks about their differing, their differing, um, differing in glory. Differing, differing physically, differing in glory, differing in essentials. It's important to notice this, that the, the idea of the, um, the verse 42 to 44, that which is sown um, uh, is perishable and those types of things, here, here's what he means. He means that what we have now is not fit for heaven. And the idea of it is, is that what we have now is fit for this earth. We are, we are fitted for earthly existence now. But when we get our glorified bodies, we will be fitted for heavenly existence. We will be fitted for eternal existence. The reason why we are declining every day and our bodies are perishing, or, or uh, not perishing, they're, they're moving towards ruin, the reason for that is that we're fitted for this earth. We've been fitted for this earth. We've been fitted for an earthly existence. And we will be fitted for a heavenly existence is what the scripture teaches us. And that's the difference. And we read already the, the, the change that takes place from a physical body or natural body, a weak body, a dishonorable body, a perishing body, moving into an imperishable body, a glorious body, a strong body, and a spiritual body. No longer fit for earth, but fit for heaven. It doesn't mean it will not exist on earth, but it is fit for heaven. And I, and, I, and I wish I had more time to explain to you the difference between the fit for earth body and the fit for heaven body. But if you get some time, look up the words perishable and what, it, what does it mean and, and dishonorable, what does that mean? And now glorious and compare the two together and you'll, you'll, I think you'll get a good understanding of what we're believing when we leave this life and what we will resurrect with. There's such a... There's such a um, there's something to look forward to in our glorified bodies. There's something to look forward to. Everything that is a restraint in this life is done away with. Everything that hinders us and causes us to move towards decline, weakness, all of those things, you know, these glasses, they're not going to be needed anymore. 
And whatever the next thing in my life that I'm going to have to have to keep getting me through, you know, it might be a knee brace or a, a new hip or, you know, you guys know what it's like, right? We're fit for this earth. And so we keep falling apart. But one day we'll be fit for heaven. And when we're fit for heaven, we'll not fall apart anymore. There'll be no pain. There'll be no new hips. There'll be no glasses. There'll be no hearing aids. There'll be none of those things. There'll be no suffering at all because we will be fit for eternal things. We're fit for earthly things now. Do you know that that is why we struggle so much with temptation? We struggle so much with temptation because we're fit for earthly things. When we get to heaven, we'll not have, or when we get into eternity, we'll not have a struggle with those types of things because we'll be fit for heaven. It's a wonderful thing. I encourage you to, to um, read and study and look at some of these other, other things. I want to give you some, a few truths and, and practical applications to, to leave with um, this morning and, and before I close some applications and truths. Number one is simply doubting the supernatural will lead to confusion about the promises of God. Doubting the supernatural leads to confusion about the promises of God. When we lose sight of what God is capable of doing in the small things, we often, it often leads us to confusion about some of the bigger things. The Corinthians didn't start doubting God's ability to raise the dead. They probably started God's ability to keep the church unified. Right? First chapter, they're all divided. Then God's ability to take care of this or to take care of that. And then it came to resurrection. You know what? If I, can't, I mean, honestly, is it not logical to say if God can't do this, then God can't resurrect people from the grave? If we can put anything after God can't do this, then let me guarantee you something. God can't resurrect you from the grave. So stop putting God can'ts in your life and put God can's. Because if God can resurrect you from the grave, God can do anything else. Doubting the supernatural leads to confusion about the promises of God. Mark 10, 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Don't be a fool. Consider God in every situation and in every circumstance. God's strength is capable of accomplishing, and God's wisdom, God's wisdom is such that he knows what is best every single time. Do you guys trust God? Not just God to have the ability to do something, but do you trust God to have the wisdom to say no sometimes and to say yes sometimes? Do you trust him that way? If you don't, it will mess up your theology in many ways. I give a few practical things here. Meditate on scripture. It helps you know who he is. It helps you know his will. It helps you know his ways. It helps you know his capabilities. Read the gospels if you want to see what Jesus is capable of. Okay? Communicate your prayers to him. Share your struggles with him. 
Share your difficulties with him. Share your challenges with him. Share your life with him. First of all, know what God can do. Secondly, share with God what your struggles are. Thirdly, trust him for two things. Trust him to be capable of doing whatever he wants to do. Trust him to have the wisdom to say yes or no. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. What happens is, as we pray to God for a season, God, do this, God, do this, God, do this, and he doesn't do it, so what do we do? We do it ourselves. We refuse to accept that he is wiser than we are. Trust him. Prayer is the best way, note this, prayer is the best way for you to know God's will if you're willing to accept his answer. Prayer is the best way for you to know God's will if you're willing to accept his answer. If you're not willing to accept his answer, you will never know his will. You will flounder through life because you will figure out ways to do the things that God has said no to. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything that is in accordance with his will, he hears, listen to this, if we ask anything that in accordance with his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, then we know that we have, we have the request that we have asked of him. You know what he just said to us? He has said to us, we know his will. We know his will by asking him and accepting the answer. Doubting the supernatural leads to confusion about the promises of God. Number two, when big, what seems big to us is simple for God. I, put, I covered this already. It's like the plant that's growing. It is something that is spectacular. It's amazing. It is simple. Because God is the one who is in control of it. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard. When it seems big to you, it's not big to him. When it seems impossible to you, it's possible for him. When it seems unlikely to you, it's likely for him. His ways are so far above our ways, folks. His thoughts above our thoughts. His power above our power. Let us not limit ourselves to what we're capable of. Let us limit. Let us not limit ourselves. Let us not limit him either. Remember number three. Your earthly body is the seed from which your heavenly body will come. This is what puts emphasis on the earthly body. Your earthly body is the seed that is sown into the ground from which your heavenly body is going to come. That's what he tells us. And it's not about the physical nature of it. It's about the spiritual side of it. Your earthly body is the seed from which your resurrected body become identifiably connected but not identical Resurrection bodies are extremely different, but absolutely connected. Therefore, use your body for God's glory. 
Use your body for God's glory. This is what he means in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 when he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Remember this too, Matthew 7, and I said this earlier, what you sow into the ground, please don't sow into the ground a, a, a seed and expect to get a different plant out of it. Don't sow an unrighteous seed into the ground and expect to get a heavenly result. Don't sow an unsaved seed into the ground and expect to get a saved result. Don't sow a sinful, you, you go through 1 Corinthians 6 that the talks about all of the different lifestyles and sins that, will, that the Lord will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to me, and it goes through uh, anger and, and drunkenness and fornication, and it goes through a whole list. It says these things will not be in the kingdom of God. Listen to me, don't sow the seed of those things into the ground and expect some kind of other tree to come out. That's foolishness. The seed that you sow into the ground is what's going to become the tree that comes out of the ground in eternity. Be a saved, be a believer, be righteous, be committed to the Lord. Sow that seed in the ground and you'll see an eternal seed come forth. Listen to me, folks. No matter how religious the religious people are in this world today, and the Bible says this in Matthew 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not performed many miracles in your name? They will sow their seed into the ground and the Lord will say to them when that seed comes up out of the ground, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting condemnation. That is not what you want to hear after the seed has already been sown. Right now, your seed is still sitting here. Commit your life to Jesus. Repent of your sins, forsake your sins, and turn to Jesus Christ and believe that you will one day come up out of the ground. When that seed is planted, you will come out of the ground and you will live eternally with God. That's the promise that we have, folks. But your seed is connected to the tree that's going to come out. Revelation 22, verse 11, the last chapter of the Bible says this, let the evildoer still be evil. And let the filthy still be filthy. And let the righteous still be righteous. And let the holy still be holy. It doesn't say, let the filthy be holy. What you sow and what you plant is what you get. My last application is this fight hard. And hopeful. Fight hard and, and hopeful for God's glory in this life. Your earthly body is not fit for heaven, and therefore it must be disciplined. The Apostle Paul is clear the things that he doesn't want to do, he does, and the things that he, that he wants to do, he doesn't do. So, what does he do? He disciplines his body because he knows his body is not fit for the things that it ought to be. So what does he have to do? He has to, he has to fight to get his body to do what it ought to do. Fight hard to serve God with your body that's not fitted for heaven. Resist temptation. Resist 
fleshly worldliness. Resist these things. Fight hard because you're not fitted for heaven yet and you must be disciplined. However, fight hopeful. Your heavenly body is promised, it's guaranteed if you're a Christian, and it's imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, the apostle Paul describes his life this way. He says, for I have already been poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have played a good game. Is that what he says? I have enjoyed this life immensely. Is that what he says? I have built up new barns so that I can store up all my new stuff. Is that what he says? I have fought a good fight. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all those who are in love with, my appear- with his appearing. We must fight in this life to do what's right. Husbands and wives, you must fight for your marriage. You must fight for your marriage. You must fight for your children. You must fight for righteousness. You must fight for truth. We must fight against the things of the flesh because we're fitted for them. It would be great if if we weren't fitted for them, but we're fitted for them. The things that you want to do, you're fitted for those things because you're fitted for earthly existence. You have to fight them. And what you know is when that seed goes into the ground, something's going to come out. And it's going to be forever. May the seed that we plant be indwelt by the Spirit and be clothed with the righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because in this is our only hope. Revelation 21 verse 4, I close with this. He says this, He will wipe away every tear from my eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will be the, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In chapter 22 and verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing with me my reward to repay each one for what they have done. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for the promises of your word. Help us, Lord God, to know that they're built around the power of a supernatural God. Help us not to fall prey to our being fitted for this world, but Lord God, to fight for what is good and right, to be able to, to, be, able to be ready to leave this world, to be able to say, I fought a good fight, I finished the course, I have kept the faith, and to anticipate a response that says, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, may we have eternal focus again, please. Restore it to us. Make us your servants that we might glorify your name. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all for being here today. Pray that you'll um, meditate on these thoughts and encourage you to come back next week. God bless you.